Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in the first portion of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. You know, somebody mentioned to me after the sermon on this, the several hallelujah choruses that show up in Revelation 19, how good it is to finally to get to some good news in the book of Revelation. Well, Revelation is a book of cycles, and we are working our way through uh, the beginning of the seventh cycle. So we've got a couple more hard sermons before we do get to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the glory that is awaiting each of us who believe and are called according to God's purpose. But we see God's sovereignty. We see God's glory even in the harder passages. And so let us keep that in mind as we approach uh, the book of Revelation, beginning in Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, holding the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have put who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let us pray. God of light and life, Please show us the glory of your sovereignty and your presence in this word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, take my words and use them to change those who hear this sermon. May you be glorified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are two major controversies of theology that have served to really cause a lot of strife and and oftentimes splits within the American church. One of them is baptism and who is to be baptized. Is it infants or believers only? Most of you know where we fall here. We fall in those words of Peter that says these promises are for you and for your children. And so that oftentimes disqualifies us from worshiping with others. The second controversy we're going to look at today and in many ways is a relatively new controversy. It is one that has come up within the last 150 years, and it is surrounded around the definition of the six occurrences in the Scripture of the phrase a thousand years. Now, many people will 
draw the line between right faith, right truth, and, dare I say, heresy, right through the middle of the definition of these thousand years. But to do that, and to be honest, I've probably been guilty of that in the past as well, but honestly, to do that is to really miss the forest for the trees, which is a theme that we have looked at throughout the book of Revelation. We spend so much time focused on defending our view, our meaning of a thousand years that we miss the glories of Jesus' work on behalf of the church, on behalf of God's children, and the glorious future that awaits us after the end of these thousand years, however we may define that. So what I hope for us to see today is the glorious truth that Satan is bound, and that because Satan is bound, the Christian can be boldly faithful and obedient in a hostile world. So John, in the first uh, three verses and then in verses 7 through 10, shows us the binding and the judgment of Satan. This vision opens with an angel descending from heaven, descending with power, descending in, in order to interact with the dragon that we know is Satan. Now notice here as Satan is identified, he is identified in four different ways with four names. He is identified as the dragon. He's identified as that ancient serpent. He's identified as the devil. And he is identified as Satan. This is in contrast to those four names of Jesus that we saw in the previous chapter where Jesus was called faithful and true, where he has the name written on him that no one knows but himself, where he is called King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is called the name of God. We are reminded in this that throughout the book of Revelation, Satan has been presented as mimicking God's kingdom and God in all that he does, and yet falling short in that mimicry. Whatever Satan does to, to imitate God, he fails in it as he moves forward. And so we are reminded before we even begin that Satan lives under the sovereignty of God, that Satan is held in check by the power of God. So the angel descends with power, a power that represents the sovereign power of God over all of his creation, even the devil. He descends with a key, a key that reminds us of the keys over death and Hades that Jesus holds in Revelation 1.18. And he descends with a chain, a chain that represents the power, the authority of God over Satan. And the angel comes to Satan with this power, with the key, with the chain, and he binds Satan for a thousand years. And the great question that causes so much controversy within the American church today is what is the nature of this 1,000 years? Now, there are three main models of interpretation of these 1,000 years. Now, within each of these interpretive models, there are various variations, um, which we cannot cover all of those variations today um, or even in the rest of our lifetime. Um, otherwise, dinner would be very cold by the end of the sermon. But we will look at these three different models and, and land on a particular model. The first model is what we call the premillennial view, the before the millennium. The word millennium is a, is a combination of two Latin words, which literally means a thousand years. 
And the premillennial view views this thousand years as a literal period of time that will be ushered in by some combination of the rapture and a seven-year tribulation. And during this time, the Christian church is in quote-unquote heaven while Jesus reigns for a thousand years on the throne of David, reestablishing the temple and the sacrificial system at the end of those thousand years, Satan will be, it's a, it's a year, it's a thousand years of prosperity and peace because Satan is no longer allowed to influence the world. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released to gather his army. Jesus will come again, again to defeat Satan and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. People who hold to this view would be people like Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, Hal Lindsey, and John MacArthur. Second is the post-millennial view. This would be after the millennium. Most people who hold to the post-millennial view view the thousand years as a symbolic period of time. Remember, most numbers, pretty much all numbers within the book of Revelation are symbolic of a greater whole or a greater picture, whether it's symbolic of completeness or fullness or just a large multitude as in the hundred, excuse me, 144,000 saints. They see Satan as being bound even now, which we will look at here in a few moments. And they see the church ultimately being victorious in this world through evangelism, through missions, through godly government, in a time of Christian peace and prosperity, ruling and reigning in our culture for a period of time before Christ comes back to fight the final battle and to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. People who hold to this would be people like R.C. Sproul, Doug Wilson, Kenneth Gentry, Gary North, and Greg Bonson. The third view is what is called the amillennial or inaugurated millennial view. Amillennial literally means no millennium, which is a a, uh, kind of a bad uh, interpretation of the view. But the amillennial views the thousand years as being symbolic and interprets the binding of Satan as happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as I said, this means that the millennium has been inaugurated and the kingdom of God will be consummated at the end of this symbolic um, thousand years when Christ returns and glorifies his children and brings in the new heavens and the new earth. Sam Storms, Kim Riddlebarger, Gerhardus Voss, and Herman Bovink have been people who have held to the amillennial view. Now, I feel like I've been pretty open about my view as we have gone through and interpreted the book of Revelation so far, but just so there's no doubt, I do fall into the last view, the amillennial or the inaugurated millennial view. And there here are a few reasons, a couple of which I've already mentioned. Numbers in the book of Revelation are typically symbolic. You know, the 144,000 that John heard counted off, he turns to see an innumerable multitude. It's the same group of people that is given there. In line with the symbolic numbers, 1,000 is a combination of 10 times 10 times 10. Ten is a number of fullness in Hebrew thought. You have something that is full three times. Remember, God is holy, 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 which means he is the most holiest, which means this is the fullnessest of time that happens 
And so Christ will come at the end of that time. All the other word pictures in Revelation 20 are symbolic. And then on the binding of Satan having happened now, we see this picture in Job 1 and 2 as Job is allowed to, or Satan is allowed to come against Job as long as he does not cross a certain line. And then last from Matthew 12, 26 through 29, I promise I'll breathe here in just a second. 12, 26 through 29, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They have accused him of casting out demons in the power of Satan. And Jesus said, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? And that word there, ties up, in Matthew 12, 29, is the same word that we have for bind in this particular passage. Basically what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12 is that he has power over the demons because he has bound Satan in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Satan is bound. Now, that then brings us to the nature of the binding of Satan. So if the thousand years is happening now, in what sense is Satan bound? The premillennial sees Satan's binding means that there is a time of intense and uncontested Christian prosperity in the world. The postmillennial views that in, in close to the same way. How do we view the binding of Satan? I mean, if you look around this world, there's a lot of evil. There are people oppressing other people. There is violence done against the innocent. There is demonic and, and emotional oppression in our world. There is still sickness and death in our world. So Ike, how can you tell me that Satan is bound? We have to go to the text to find the answer to that. And our text today tells us how Satan is bound. It says to us that Satan is bound to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And then as we look at the doom of Satan, beginning of verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth to gather them for battle. So how is Satan bound? Well, he cannot deceive the nations. This has two applications. First is to the spread of the gospel. The gospel is not bound by Satan's work. The gospel from the time of Jesus' resurrection through the book of Acts and even into today is moving into the uttermost parts of the earth. People whose minds are opened by the Holy Spirit, whose hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit, will be saved. The gospel cannot be stopped. I am building my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail. But more specifically to the text today, the deception of Satan is the gathering of the nations for the final battle. Who knows the day and the time when the final battle and Christ's return happens? Only God. 
Who is sovereign over the day and the moment of when that final battle happens? Only God. Satan cannot rush it. You cannot rush it. No army, no country, no king, no president. Nobody can rush it. And so God has bound Satan so that he cannot gather the nations together until God is ready. God is sovereign over the return of Jesus. God is sovereign over the army that would be gathered by Satan, which he will then gather together to judge. We see imagery in here from our our scripture reading earlier, this nation, Gog and Magog. Um, Even Old Testament scholars don't know who Gog is or where Magog was. Um, There are various... uh, different thoughts and interpretations, but none of them hold much weight. And so this is symbolic of this this force that is able to gather people from the four corners of the earth to drag them into battle against God. And notice God is even sovereign over that because we saw in Ezekiel 38 that God says, Gog and Magog, you will gather your armies and I will drag you by hooks in your teeth to your defeat, to your demise. And so we see God sovereign over that last battle. And then after that last battle, which we saw a picture of it last week as the the rider on the white horse, the king of kings and lord of lords, with the power of his voice, destroys the army. We see this scene again with a different interpretive focus Because in the defeat of the army, in the gathering of the nations to fight against God's camp, against his beloved city, brothers and sisters, we are the camp, the city of the beloved God. It is his people. It is his church. As these armies are gathered around the church, fire and brimstone falls from the heavens, reminding us of Sodom and Gomorrah, reminding us of the fate of Satan, reminding us of the fate of the lost. Because in his defeat, in his judgment, Satan is thrown with the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever. Life in this world is difficult. But God has put limits on what Satan can do in the attacks on the people of God. Satan is bound. God is sovereign over history find rest and peace even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of turmoil, because like God did for Job, God has set boundaries on Satan's ability to harm you and to harm the church. So we know what's happening with Satan during this thousand years. He's bound in the abyss, still influencing the world, but within boundaries and limits that are placed upon him by God. And he is being used even by God to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. But what about the saints? What about the holy ones? Well, they are reigning with Christ. John turns from his vision of the binding of Satan in verse 3, and he turns to heaven. And he sees thrones which have people sitting upon them. We've seen thrones before in Revelation. The word shows up 46 times in the book of Revelation, and 43 of those times it refers to the church in God's presence, to the church in heaven. We were first introduced to them in Revelation 4 and 5, and we've seen thrones throughout. 
In the vision in Revelation 4 and 5, the triune God is seated sovereignly on his throne and the 24 elders who represent the Old and the New Testament church are seated around God's throne on their own thrones, offering worship and praise to God. Here we see a little bit different picture of probably the same scene because rather than elders, John sees beheaded souls seated upon those thrones who are doing the work of judging. Now, we know that we will judge as the saints of God. We're not exactly, I'm not exactly clear on what that judging is. Um, We know that ultimate judgment comes from Jesus who is seated upon his throne. And so somewhere in there, we will be sifting truth. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6 that we do not take brothers and sisters to court because we are we have far more responsibility than the court because we will judge angels. We will judge fallen sinners. So somewhere in that work of Jesus judging, of Jesus ruling, of Jesus reigning, the, the saints in heaven are there, these saints who have been beheaded. And these, these souls have been beheaded, we are told, for four reasons. The first, they were beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus or their testimony of Jesus. This word testimony is the word that we get martyr from. And it it means in the scriptures, one who acts as a witness in a court. Now this has grown over the years in its usage to mean someone who dies for their faith. But you are a martyr if you simply testify to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a witness to God. That's why we call evangelism witnessing most of the time. Is because that's what the word means. These saints lost their life because they testified to the person and work of Jesus in the face of temptation and persecution. Secondly, they lost their life because of the word of God. The word of God reminds us that the children of God, that you and I are called to live in such a way that we show the world that we are shaped by God's law rather than the whims of the world. We were talking about in Sunday school today, the plight of the Israelites at the end of the book of Judges. They look more like the world than they do the people of God. There are repeated violations of all 10 commandments in those last five chapters of the book of Judges. And in fact, at the end of the book of Judges, we think more of Sodom and Gomorrah than we do the people of God because that's how they're acting when we forget that we have been made holy, when we forget that we have been transformed by the work of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we lose faith in God's word. We begin to look more like the world than we do the people of God. Thirdly, they have been beheaded because they refuse to worship the beast or his image. That's what the false prophet, that's what the beast from the sea was about, was leading people, deceiving them to worship the dragon. These souls are are portrayed more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to worship at the altars of the gods of this world. And even though God may choose to allow them to be consumed in the fiery furnace, refused to bow to anybody but God. And fourthly, they refused to receive the mark of the beast. We were told in Revelation 13 that the mark of the beast gave you access to stores, to economic benefits. 
And yet, rather than compromising their worship, rather than compromising their testimony, rather than compromising God's law, they refused to take the beast and take the mark of the beast and they suffered hardship for it. Brothers and sisters, if you live and die in the pursuit of being faithful in your witness, faithful in your holiness, faithful in your worship, and faithful in your unwillingness to compromise, you are one of the beheaded souls reigning with Jesus. And this is what is called the first resurrection. In the first portion of verse 5, this is a parenthetical phrase that actually kind of interrupts the flow of thought between verse 4 and the end of verse 5. It is those beheaded souls on the throne in heaven that is the first resurrection. What does that mean? This is the first resurrection. Well, the first resurrection is one of two things. It is either the interme- or, excuse me, it is either the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 2, Paul states that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were made alive in Christ, resurrection language in a spiritual sense. Secondly, and most likely, this is a description of the intermediate state. Ike, what is the intermediate state? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 38, says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? Answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection till the resurrection. This, this picture or, or this, this reality that at death our body and our souls are separated, our souls are transported to the heavenly presence of God where we rest, where we worship, and where we wait for that return of Christ when our bodies will be reunited with our souls and we will be fully glorified. Those who are not united to Christ when they reach their, their death will find themselves not in the presence of God. They will find themselves suffering, although not the full suffering that they will experience once Christ returns and they are judged forever. That's the rest of the dead there because even their death is described as a death where the death of a Christian is described as a new life in heaven with God. So we know what the first resurrection is. What's the second death? Well, that's where we'll, we'll see in verse 14 next week that the, the second death is the lake of fire. It says at the end of verse 14, the lake of fire is the second death. And blessed are those who die in their faithfulness to Christ because they will not taste the second death. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. What a glorious truth that is. You know, all of us, unless Christ should return, each and every one of us in this room will suffer the first death. All of us will suffer physical death. We don't, it's, it's something we need to consider. It's something we need to think about. It's something we definitely don't like to consider or to think about. Children of God, after the first death, will experience the first resurrection, a spiritual resurrection or the intermediate state. And then at a later date when Christ returns, the children of God will experience a physical resurrection as well. Worshippers of the beast will experience the physical resurrection in that they will be raised to judgment and then they will experience the second death. It is better to live, to die once and live twice than to live once and die twice. Now, John is explaining for us what Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 
31 through 39, where Paul calls us more than conquerors. You and I right now have this truth. We are conquerors in Christ. The worst that Satan can do to us on this earth is take your life. And Paul describes that as gain because that ushers us into the presence of God. For Christian, death is the entry to victory, not a declaration of defeat. The saint that stands on the firing line for the sake of their faith will reign in heaven with Christ. The saint that lies on a hospital bed under hospice care proclaiming the glories of heaven in the face of the worst of enemies will reign in heaven with Christ. Satan and the world will do their worst. You can count on that. But their worst is entrance to victory for the child of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that we are not to fear those who can kill the body, but can do nothing to the soul. Brothers and sisters, if you are covered by the blood of Christ, Satan may kill your body, but he can do nothing to your soul. He is bound in what he can do to you. Yes, there are times where we suffer under excruciating pain in this world, whether it's emotional pain, spiritual pain, physical pain, where we have to rely solely upon the grace of God, where we despair even unto death. But Satan cannot touch your soul. Because of that, even in the worst, even in the best of situations in this earth, you and I can boldly and faithfully proclaim the testimony of Jesus. We need not fear what people say about us. We need not fear what people do to us because of that testimony. Because God has bound Satan and we have a glorious future awaiting. We can be boldly obedient in a world that celebrates disobedience to God's law. Because whatever the world does for us or to us in the midst of our obedience, we have glory that awaits. Whether it be outright persecution or the moment by moment battle with sin, you and I are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. The call is to live like we are more than conquerors. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words, for this reminder that you are sovereign even over Satan that he does not reign free in this world, but he is bound in what he can do and who he can deceive. Lord, help us to live in the boldness and the power of that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. May the Lord strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.